0: And go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, Welcome to New Vintage. If you're joining us online, we're glad to have you with us as well. And uh, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible, Bible app, anything like that, want to get it open, I hope you will. Um, For the next, say, six, seven weeks, whatever it takes to fill out the end of the year for us, uh, we're going to be talking about outreach. Some of the different ways that our church is making an impact, wants to make an impact and hopefully showing you how we do our best to align ourselves with some of the essence of what we see here in the New Testament about how the Christian faith is supposed to be lived out, um, how we're supposed to grab hold of the world, (laughs) the life that we've been given, and, and to go ahead and throw ourselves into it all the way, and how God works when we're doing that. So when we get to Acts 17, Paul, the apostle, is... Uh, in trouble again. He's always in hot water. We read last week about him being in prison and he and Silas kind of going through the jail break there at at Philippi and how God uh, transforms the life of that jailer through the holy living of of Paul and Silas and through their witness of uh, courage while they're there in jail. Today, Paul is on the run yet again. And so they've decided that we're going to get Paul and put him in essentially a safe house. We're going to put him in the middle of Athens somewhere in a safe house where nobody will kill him, nobody will throw him in jail, nobody will beat him, we hope. And Paul's given the instructions to essentially just lay low, man. Like, look, we'll get the rest of your co-preachers here, we'll get you all synced up, and we'll get you on the way. But in the meantime, you hide out here, you stay put, you lay low. And in typical Paul fashion, he does nothing like that. He uh, goes in one ear, out the other, and the next thing you know, he's walking down the middle of Athens. Athens, okay? Not Not some little uh, tiny town where nobody knows who he is. Athens, okay? Athens, Greece. Now, Athens at the time, city of about 10,000, ripe with idolatry. In fact, uh, Pausanias, who's a, a historian, early church historian, will come about 50 years after Paul, and he will say that the idols outnumber the people in Athens three to one. So you got 10,000 people, 30,000 idols, roughly, according to Pausanias. So he comes in, Paul does, and he's walking down, and it says that he looks around, this is Acts 17, 16, he looks around and he sees all the idols in the great city. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. Now, Idols to us still make very little sense. We read about it in the Old Testament, New Testament, these different places. Uh, and sometimes it can may, maybe seem a little weird that they would have these little handcrafted things and objects that they would worship. It was funny, uh, we, still, we don't do a lot of that here in the United States anymore, but we do do some of this. It wasn't that long ago, a few years maybe, my wife and I went to, uh, only on vacation, we were up in like West Hollywood, Hollywood Hills area, and we decided to take a hike. This is actually on a Sunday. And we got up to the top of this mountain uh, in the Hollywood Hills, and here's what we found at the top. Look at this. There we go. Now, hikers recognize some of these little pillars because sometimes people will do that like breadcrumbs. They'll leave them, these little stone, like two, three rocks on top of each other to let you know a human being was there. It's a way for you to go, okay, that's my way back, or this is where you make the turn. This is at the top of the mountain. And alongside these rock piles, we would see little notes like this. Uh, The one on the top there, if you can't make it out, says, if you're reading this, you made it. This one says, life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. And then it gives the person's Instagram (laughs) account. All right? So (laughs) if you need an an illustration of the idols of our age, maybe there it is, the selfie culture. Uh, We make ourselves into an image that we want people to be drawn to or influenced by, rather than being ourselves and building authenticity with people. But we'll leave that one for another day. We make idols of different kinds. And in our world, they tend to become things like uh, fake missions, uh, meaning things that that drag our life and our purpose off track, Uh, things that capture our desires or our affections that are contrary to the will of God. Um, We often will Uh, You know, whether it's recreation or pleasure or money or fame or whatever the case may be, whatever it is that drives you, okay, that really is what you worship, what has your desires. And so part of becoming a Christian is trying to strive to have your desires transformed to where what you want is what God wants. So when it says Paul's disturbed at the idols. It's different than I get bothered by things. When Paul's bothered by it, um, he's bothered by it because it bothers God. Now, I get annoyed by different things. Uh, for instance, my top, top of my, my pet peeve list, we all got them, so don't look down on me, okay, um, is, is, are people who play videos on their phone or phone calls on their phone at full volume in quiet places, libraries, restaurants, airports, where, where it's one of those things where everybody's got a, you know, is stuck, you got a delay or something, and it's delays on every flight around you, so the whole area is packed, and hot, and sweaty, and miserable, and then somebody decides they have to FaceTime, you know, their grandkids in another part of the world, and the whole thing goes and plays through the entire concourse of everything to the point that, you know, occasionally I want to just walk up to them and say, hey, tell them I said hi, and see what they say, you know, or, or if they're taking a phone call and they're asking, you know, their assistant to do this and that, I want to take notes, and when it's done, give them the sheet afterwards and say, where would you like me to start, see something like that, and just rattle their cage, because it bugs me. I'm like, why are you, why are you thrilling us all with this? You know you are surrounded by little kiosks that sell earbuds. I will buy you a pair right now if you'll just go get a pair. Okay, Those are my things, and they bother me, but they don't bother God. Notice, there's a difference between saying what, that this bothers me because it bothers God, which is different than saying, if it bothers me, it bothers God. See the difference? Huge difference. Your political opponents may bother you, but they may not bother God. Um, Bad habits that people have, the way that people drive, may bother you, but it doesn't bother God. But the journey of the faith is trying to say, okay, this bothers my heavenly Father. This is what, if he slept, this is what would keep him awake at night. And then my desires, needing to become conformed to that. I'm praying to God, God, change my desires transform me into the likeness of your son heart mind soul strength i want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind i want my desires and yours to match paul is bothered because it bothers god so the question for us to start with this morning as we head with paul in athens and see what he does is what is it exactly that bothers you and, and do those bothers, do those things that bother you, do they match? To what extent does what bothers God bother you? Lostness. People that are far from him. As Paul's going to say, you know, that God's hope was that you would find your way toward him and f- seek him and find him, even though he's not very far from any of us. That God's reconciliation with people is at the top of his list. Now, we even live in a world today where people will try to convince us that God cares about certain things that really they just care about. They try to take something very fleshly and very earthly, baptize it in the right thing, dress it up like church, and then say God cares. But when you read the New Testament, God cares about, <laughs> he cares about things like uh, what people believe about his son. He cares about how we love our neighbors. He cares about our devotion to him and whether he's first or he's not. He does not care as much as we think about some other things that, are, that we're told he cares about. What you see in Paul is a life that is lived on mission regardless of the circumstances, regardless of where it takes him. After what he just experienced in Philippi, we talked about it last week, going to jail, going through the excruciating torment of going to a Roman prison, watching God deliver him via a miracle, watching the conversion of the jailer, Of course he's walking around with some boldness right now, as should we, as should we. This really shouldn't be uh, a world in which the Christians, the people of God, Jesus's people are walking around all the time scared of everything around them, that we're called to be people of courage and particularly when it comes to the things that are heavy on the heart of God. At NBC, thus, we try, sometimes better than other times, but we try very much to to, to stay on mission, even if that leads us right into the middle of what you might call the marketplace. Because we believe God cares about people. Cities have a lot of people. And they also have uh, a little bit more, it's a little easier to see in some places, then maybe out in the country somewhere, but everywhere has got sin and wickedness. It just comes in different forms, right? And here, the vices of the world in which we live and the culture we're in here in Southern California is different. If we're not careful, we're going to be the Paul who stays in the house, and he doesn't leave like Paul does here and marches right down the main street of Athens— And ends up standing in front of the Areopagus, this big kind of ruling council, teaching group, high influence, academic types, philosophers of the age, people with great, great influence. Paul could have stayed in the house where it was safe. And indeed, that may be the the tombstone of our culture might be stay safe. We stayed safe. Rest in peace, (laughs) you know. And there's a time to do that. But spiritually speaking, safety is not what you're after. Spiritually speaking, what you want to do is say, God, I'm going to try to listen to what you want me to do. I'm going to try and conform my desires to yours, and I'm going to trust that your word, the Holy Spirit, the power of God, uh, the, the light that you put inside of us to be light and darkness, that instead of praying that no darkness you know, that I wouldn't have to enter any darkness. I would recognize I am like, give me the courage to shine brightly. You know, Jesus' is dying in prayer in John 17, he says, Father, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. He doesn't want us out of the world. He wants us in the world. So what Paul does, and he's about to do here, is to walk right down Athens, And in 1721, it describes them. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's what they were into, philosophy, new ideas. And so he eventually comes across some Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and he begins to teach them. He starts talking about the gospel, starts talking about God, starts talking about Christianity and things. And they're not quite sure to make, what to make of Paul right away, so they go, you know what? You know, some people seem to think he's kind of a simpleton, that, okay, that, you know, that's cute or whatever. I haven't heard anything about that before, and I would have if you were anybody with a good idea. So you're kind of a simpleton. They kind of pat him on the head. Others say or think that he's a teacher of foreign divinities. So eventually they go, you know what? Let's get you in front of the Areopagus, see what they think. So they grab Paul. They take him in front of the Supreme Council of Judges and Philosophers of all Athens, the guy is supposed to be laying low. He's supposed to be in the house watching Netflix or whatever, but don't leave the house, Paul. And you know, he is the biggest spotlight in all of Athens. Why? Paul, it's not safe. What are you doing? Well, it says that he goes for a walk and it says. He's bothered by the idolatry he sees, that he looks around him and he goes, there's something inside him that goes, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't right. You mean to tell me that all these great thinkers and all these philosophers and all these people, they're like, as Jesus would say, sheep without a shepherd. It bothers him. He said, no, I'm not going to go in my house. I got preaching to do. So there he goes. And the next thing you know, he's there in front of the Areopagus. I'm just going to suggest to you that there's a lesson here that we're supposed to learn. Some of this stuff that we read in Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive. We're not all supposed to get stoned to death, like Stephen. It's a description of what happens, okay? This one, to me, is kind of a toss-up, and you get the sense that we're supposed to pay attention to what he does here that there's something about what Paul does by actually leaving the house and going out and being courageous and engaging the marketplace that's supposed to take the church as it exists and enliven it a bit uh, to give it a sense of, yeah, you know what, maybe we can go into the marketplace because we are made for the marketplaces. Why would you say that? Because we were given the (laughs) We were given the the power of God inside of us, and we say with our mouths at least that the one one who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world. So if we believe that's the case, then why in the world would I be afraid of the world? That's all right. You don't have to golf clap. We can clap up in here. Just send it upward. That's all I ask. Listen, man, when is the church going to make a decision that we're tired of being scared? We're not scared. We don't have to be scared. That's the beauty of Christianity. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the gospel. So I go, well, look, if, if that leads me to prison, then, then I'll be with God in prison. As Paul says, you know what? If it means I die, then you know what? Hey, at least I'm with Jesus. And if I stay here, guess what? I'm with Jesus. So I'm in a win, 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 win predicament here. My job is to be faithful. So I'm going to be faithful at what I do. So Paul goes out. And now Christians, let me just suggest this. Maybe then The wisest move for us in terms of our mission is not to leave the marketplaces, to say, I'm not going to be a part of that. No, I'm I'm a Christian. I would never watch that. I would never read that. I would never listen to that. I would never be a part of that. No, you don't have to be unless you want to make an impact on that. And I've been to meetings for years. School board, downtown business association, chamber of commerce. Uh, I did a management program at Columbia University. And in all four cases, I was the only pastor there. The only one. That makes me sad, A, because it would have been good to have some spiritual muscle around me, somebody to add a boy or add a girl across the way, you know, high five coming in and out, pray for each other, all that stuff. But I also thought, how in the world do you have an impact as a town crier from the other side of the wall? How do you do that? When you send people the message, I am too good for you. Or what you're doing doesn't matter to me. Why should they listen to you? So, you know, we, we, we try to do things on mission, small things even. Just because we want to make an impact however we can. And we, we, we got limited re- financial resources and human resources and stuff. So we, don't, we try not to waste any opportunity we got. The ball caps that some of you wear in and out of here. The old painter style MDC caps, right? Stuff like that. Let's make them in the colors of the local high schools so that people will actually wear them, <laughs> right? So that when they're out there at their football games or whatever, they can put those on. And dude, we sold out of those things in like two minutes and made human billboards out of our people who were willing to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll wear my NBC cap to a ball game. On mission, small stuff, the NBC shirts that many of us wear, olive green, the whites, or the long sleeve grays, when you buy one of those, Grab the name tag on the inside of it. The name tag has a woman's name on it. It was handmade. She signs her name on the tag. A victim of sex trafficking in the world who's exited that in part because of the t-shirt company that we buy our shirts from. Small stuff. You can live your life on mission, right, by doing really big grandiose things, but it often starts with really small things. Tiny things. Where are we going to buy our shirts from? We could have gone the normal, hey, let's go get a $3 burlap feeling nasty t-shirt like most churches do. And we did, frankly, the first few days before you found this thing. But then you know what? Now, I'm going through my Instagram thing this week, and here we go. We got this, this like SWAT team kind of thing where they swooped in to this brothel somewhere in Vietnam, I think it was, and rescued three women out of, out of, out of the brothel. And I was like, mm-hmm. There you go. I'm not sure it was the shirt I bought that did it, <laughs> but I'd like to think so. It was my shirt that probably put them over the top there. But they're going to rescue these gals out, give them a whole new existence, whole new life. And so <laughs> we come to this little building here. We celebrated a year, folks, one year. Yeah, congratulations to the kingdom. The city, and to you guys who've helped make us uh, uh, make this a non—you um, know—something that's a real joy, most of the time—to uh, to be a part of. One year, very quietly, we here did our thing. I had a group of uh, of pastor friends here for a prayer group on on I think it was Tuesday, and we were up in the mezzanine there, and I took them on a tour. And the questions they asked were the same ones we asked all the way through when we were thinking about building the grand. Where are you guys' offices? What offices? Well, why don't you have offices here? Because if we had offices, we would be in them. And then we would think they were ours. So we don't have any offices. We have one. We built one office. There's one office that's used as storage for the most part. It's on the second floor in the back of the black box theater. That's it. The theology of who we are as a church is in the architecture of the place. The operation of the plays. What do you, you know, what do you guys do when you have other events in here? Like when you're doing plays, do you just pull the curtain in front? And no, the band tears down every week. They go, the band tears down every week? Are you kidding me? No. What? They're willing to do that? Well, I'm not saying they're thrilled about it every week. <laughs> but yes, they're willing to do it. You know why? Because it means we can have other things on this stage. Do you know? Yesterday. Yesterday. Saturday. We had more than 1,000 people in here. Not just in this room, there was three shows in this room. Classical Academy had their middle school show in here, right? They had it in here because our band is willing to break down every single time on mission, right? Five minutes before we started the nine o'clock, I had nowhere to put that tablet because all the, all the iPad stands were gone or disassembled. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do? I have nowhere to put this thing. And then I got rescued by one of our tech people who came and and dismembered some other thing and put it back on the other one and and MacGyvered the thing together. And I thought to myself, I go, what a great illustration. Now, if I sat there, like I probably could have done in in years past, and I thought to myself, well, I should have the ability to know, you know, have a stand there for my iPad. You know, and I can't believe that this is an outrage that that should happen to me, a messenger of the Lord. You know, I mean, come on, people. Like, at some point, you have to go. At some point, you almost kind of you embrace it as part of what it means to do life with other people. So, what I'm about to share with you here's the spirit in which I want you to take it. Okay. We've been here a year, and I think the if you're going to write a, a motto of year one, it would kind of be getting to know each other. If I invite you to my house, that means I trust you. If you show up. That means you trust me. So we're at a point now where we invited everybody and now they've shown up. So we got we got a relationship now with our city. I think it's awesome. So now keep in mind that we opened in the middle of lockdowns. All right? We constructed it during lockdowns. We opened up, and in fact, there was a, another shutdown last holidays. And, you know, there were lawsuits, churches, the whole thing going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and so these numbers are very much deflated from what a normal year probably would have been. But think about the magnitude of this, all right? So we had 1,000 in here yesterday. We're going to have 2,000 next weekend. That's not counting church, by the way. <laughs> um, so in our first year, covered by both full and partial lockdowns, we made an enormous impact on our community. So, here we go. Here's a slide. I'll walk you through it. Manzanita served more than 30,000 people. 30,000. Yeah, no, amen. Now, I know that sounds weird. It's like, well, how many baptisms did you get out of the cup of coffee? None, probably. But you know what? That's not the point. I have you over my house. I'm having you over my house. It got them to feel comfortable in here. We gave them world-class coffee. They're starting to feel at home here. 30,000. Okay? We passed 20,000 in just church attendance and church events. Okay? 20,000. Now, obviously, some of you are duplicates, including myself, right? Um, but when you start adding the body count together, it's rather surprising. And again, keep in mind that a lot of that was when we were doing like three services for like 75 people total because of the trying to space everybody out and we weren't supposed to be having anything at all at one point in time. So you have to put it on par, you know, kind of in perspective as we look at it. We had 39 on-stage productions, 33 movies shown, eight concerts, five dance recitals, three class reunions, four wedding receptions. Every community group you can imagine. Rotary Clubs, Chamber of Commerce, Downtown Business Association. We hosted John Paul the Great's film festival in here and graduation, I believe. Escondido Police Department had their academy graduation in here. Uh, I did a funeral in here. Um, I mean, I could just go on and on and on. We, we, we marry them uh, and, and uh, act and play instruments and do everything that you can do in this room. We did a Valentine's Day dinner down here and up in there in the, in the mezzanine. You can even come romance your significant other at the Ritz. So there you go. Yeah, that's our commitment to, the, to building the children's ministry. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you know, all I'm saying is man, and then you throw in just we got the global leadership summit here. Um, you know, we and by the way, those attendance numbers don't even count online. The impact of the church and its online uh, audience. Um, more than eleven thousand people bought tickets to some event here. Okay, eleven thousand guys in a COVID year. Again, when you go to somebody's house, it means you trust them. And yes, it's been horribly messy and chaotic, confusing, frustrating, depressing, exhilarating, fascinating, all at the same time. But and probably next year, we're going to be more church forward than we were in year one. Because it's like when I sit down on an airplane next to somebody, they don't go, hi, I'm Sam. And I go, hi, I'm Tim. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? That's not, that's not how, you, that's how you meet people, all right? So this is our year to kind of basically say, you can trust us. And we're at a point now, sisters and brothers, where when the city has a problem that they need help solving, they come to us with that. That is awesome and as a pastor that's what you pray for you know if, if they got a problem so for instance like dj will tell you about this later eventually you know they got a problem in the park across the street nobody uses it so they ask can you guys come up with a solution for the park we're like tell you what maybe let's do a little beta test see what it's see what it's you know see what it's like so we're going to do a christmas thing over there in the park in mid-december Hey, you know what? We got all these people and we got families that are poor that need feeding, right? So, so they come to us with us. You got 150 families that need food? We can help. Let us help you. Next year, May 22nd, I think it is, put it on your calendar, week before Memorial Day. They're going to do a big music festival all up and down Grand. Hey, we need help. Can you guys, can we use your stage? You want to sponsor stuff. Can we put one right outside your door? Can we do all these other things? That's awesome, guys. That's the marketplace, right? Now, I will will also add this. We baptized more people in the last 18 months than we probably did in the previous nine years of the church. Okay? So, on that scale. Now, let me go back here and say that what Paul is about to do is he's about to preach a sermon, and I'm going to read it to you. Okay? It is, to me, a template for how you communicate in the marketplace. It's kind. It's clear, it's strong, it's amazing. He gets up and he starts here. Acts 17, to 23. It says, so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice you're very religious. Now again, there's like 30,000 idols. So that's his way of saying, hey, I... You seem like very religious people. For as I was walking along, I I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. So he looks and he says, here's all these idols. You have one here that's labeled to the unknown God because they didn't want anybody to get missed. So they wrote, to the unknown God. Just in case you missed anybody, that's their statue. He looks at it and he says, let me explain who that is to you. Let me tell you about a God you don't know. Dude, that's so good. My boy Paul. Now imagine again, let's say he knows nothing about philosophy. You know, he's scared of Athens. His his mom would never let him go to Athens uh, because she was afraid that he'd get get caught up in wild living or something. So he's not allowed to go to Athens. Uh, He's never, he he has no common ground with these people whatsoever. I'm just suggesting that the foundation for his sermon comes in his ability to find common ground based on his willingness to be in the marketplace all the time. So when he shows up, it's like, um, and you may have had this experience, and I'm not trying to say this to kind of, I'm really not trying to judge people. I'm asking us to to stretch a bit here, okay? If if we're going to be the people who at every dinner party and every conversation we're having with somebody who's not a person of faith, our, our mainline comment is, oh, I don't watch TV. Or I, I, haven't re- I don't read books. Um, I don't listen to music. Then where are you going to start? Where are you going to start? Come back to that one later. You have to start <laughs> somewhere. And Paul starts where their interests are. Philosophy. He was raised in Tarsus, big Stoic philosophy center. He even in his sermon will quote one of their people in his sermon. He actually co-ops their cultural stuff and throws it into his sermon. And he basically says, our unknown gods, these unknown gods you speak about, they represent a thirst for the true God that you can know. Here's his sermon. Acts 17, 24 to 32. Front of the Areopagus, full view of all Athens. Here's what he says. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, that's not a small claim to an Athenian, by the way. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of them. For in him we live and move and exist. And then he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we should not think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God looked, overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he's appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. Are you surprised by that, folks? I'm not. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. So he appeals to their knowledge of creation. He couldn't just recite scripture to people who don't care anything about the Bible. He has to start where they are, work his way over toward biblical truth. He he appeals to their common humanity. He asserts that God made the world and everything in it, verse 24, that God can't be captured in shrines made by man, verse 24, but he exists over the face of the whole earth, that we may all find our true purpose in his service alone, verse 28, 29. And so he says, basically, God gave you guys the okay to continue to wallow around in your ignorance till now, but that's over now. Now that Jesus has been raised from the grave, that's over. And so let me go ahead and uh, give you three little quickies here before we, we take off. One, God isn't far from any of us. Verse 27. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Picture it like a cell phone that goes off your alarm in the morning, and it's on your nightstand, but it's dark outside, so you don't want to move, so you stick your arm over there, and you slap around looking for your phone. Okay, it's not far from you. You're, you're reaching around feeling for it, even though it's not far from you. He said, that's kind of how God is, he's right here. And his point was that when you reached out toward him, you would find him. He is not a God who does not want to be found. He wants to be found, Reach out for him, he's saying to them, okay? He's not far, and in Christ, he's very near. Number two, the God we can know knew us before we were born. He goes eternal with the whole thing. He starts back before, you know, really at creation, or even a little before, works through the whole thing. He says, God made you, God knows everything about you, God still loves you, and he wants to know you, and he's not far from you. If you reach out at all, you'll hit him. Number three, we can know God only through Jesus. He doesn't try to get them to get the gospel through osmosis. There still has to be that turn. There still has to be that gospel turn toward the exclusivity of Christ. And so he definitely goes there. He goes all the way to the resurrection, a fact completely contrary to anything they believed. Even the part about him saying God's over heaven and earth, I mean, you'll know enough probably about Greek mythology to know they had a God for everything. And he said, no, there's one. He's over everything. That's a big, radical claim. And then to say that Jesus died and was raised from the grave, and he says, you know, in the past, God would allow people to flail around in their ignorance, but not anymore. Now he's, he's got a king that he set before us all. His name is Jesus. He was raised from the grave, and he continues to just preach, but he's earned the hearing. Now, some people, when he's done, go, you know what? They laugh with contempt. <laughs> yeah, right, a raised guy. And then others, though, Dionysius. Domeris, their names are in Scripture. And they go, you know what? Yeah, that's right. And so, Christians, sometimes people will make fun, but some will be willing to hear more. And others, like Dionysius and Damaris will join you and they will believe. Our call is to be faithful, to leave the house. To be willing to engage the marketplace in which god has put us god's got rooms for different kinds of churches different kinds of places he's got he's got the you know the churches that primarily feed uh you know established christians that maybe are are um or newer christians that need a lot of a lot of milk a lot a lot of that kind of stuff but our place it feels to me like just as the pastor our place is in the Athenian kind of ministry. It's in being in the marketplace in the middle of things and being a person who, uh, our church is the person, being those who can enter the marketplace without fear, enter the marketplace without being timid, and be willing to embrace it as a place in which the gospel must, must go, must go. If we think that we're going to be able to fulfill the Great Commission by leaving every newspaper, every media outlet, every school, every book, every music, every, list, every TV show, every, 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 because we're afraid of our own contamination by it. In my view, we ignored the witness of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean there's never a time to do that. What I'm saying is a way of life that I won't even talk to you because I'm afraid I might be contaminated by you, then don't hold your breath waiting to change the world because it's hard to impact a world that you're either scared of or that you can't stand. So, New Vintage Church, I'm inviting you to continue the path that we're on and put some turbo juice in it and let's go get year two, all right? Uh, praise God. May God bless the hearing of his word. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, at this time, if you're not familiar with what this is, this is what we call communion here in the uh, in, in church. We do this every Sunday at New Vintage. You should have gotten a little bag with the elements on the inside if you did not and you would like some. Uh, we have some ushers walking around. Just throw a quick hand in the air and they'll, they'll spot you and get you the elements. But what I want to do today uh, as as our prayer is I want to take Paul's sermon on Mars Hill there and give that to... Um, Offer that as a prayer before the Lord, a prayer of praise. Man, I'm thankful for churches in little rural towns and, um, you know, in the jungles of Ecuador and big, fancy-looking, snotty-looking churches in Europe that look amazing, uh, even if they're empty on the weekends. I'm glad they're there. See, like William Shakespeare buried in the wall. That's cool and awesome. And they're there, and they've got hundreds of years of ministry there. But, man, I'm thankful for our church, too, and how God's called us and put us in the place that that we are. So, in that spirit this morning, uh, let's go to our Heavenly Father with thanks. Lord, as we take communion now, we say, you are the God who made the world and everything in it. Since you are Lord of heaven and earth, you do not live in man-made temples. Human hands cannot serve your needs, for you have none. You give life and breath to everything, and you satisfy every need. From one man, you created all nations throughout the whole earth. You decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, you determined their boundaries. Your purpose was for the nations to seek after you and perhaps feel their way toward you and find you, though you're not far from any of us. For in you, we live and move and exist. And since this is true, we don't think of you as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. We know, Father, that you overlook people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now you command everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to you. For you have set a day, For judging the world, and you have proved to everyone by whom you shall do so by raising him from the dead. And so, Father, for those who want to hear more about this later, Father, we ask that they would return to you. Father, for those that are here and going through a fearful time in their life, Father, we ask that you give them courage and a feeling of empowerment by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, for the, the gift of this church, we give you thanks. For the gift of a year at the Grand, Father, we look forward to year two with great hope and expectation. And, Father, uh, it has been one interesting ride so far, and yet we're just getting started. And so, Lord, for the journey that you've given us, the calling you've given us, we say thank you. And with bread and cup, we say afresh to you this morning, yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.